Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Alan Holland had a steady, comfortable life as a lecturer in Artificial Intelligence in University College Cork. But in 2012, he left it all to try and build a startup specialising in procurement automation. Ten years on, that company, Kielvar, has just picked up a funding round of $24 million, with plans to increase headcount at the firm to over 100. Alan Holland, let me take you back first to those early days. You, you were a very distinguished academic with a PhD in artificial intelligence that was noted at European level. Did you enjoy college life and, and why did you leave it to start a company? Uh, yes, first of all, I, I really enjoyed college life. And sometimes when I visit the university recruiting now, I, I envy my former life there. Uh, it, it, uh, it, was, it was a lot to enjoy about lecturing in computer science in university, such a fast changing environment. And I think students keep you young as well. But but uh, I did find that I suppose I had an itch I just needed to scratch. And uh, I came from an entrepreneurial family. My parents set up their own business and I had maybe come across a problem that they encountered when dealing with procurement teams. You know, they sold chemicals and I knew as a computer scientist, I could solve that problem. I just felt compelled to go go out into the marketplace and solve it. And what was that transition like from a lecturer in UCC into starting and building your own company? To be honest, it was quite difficult uh, in that I had seen, I suppose, my parents build a business from scratch and I did have some help in that regard and I had an advantage of knowing just how to set up a business and type of expertise to bring in from accountants and legal advisors and so on that that most academics didn't have the same exposure to but in the first couple of years I I did hit that wall of, of, of finding product market fit and uh, running down cash reserves to a point where uh, stress levels were high. But fortunately, we, we did pivot just in time and we did start to find product market fit. But it took about three years. So the first three years were really tough. Did you have any fears at the time that you might make it? I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> I, I don't know why I didn't. But no point did I ever think we wouldn't make it. But I think if you were an objective analyst looking at our situation and looking at cash reserves going down and down and down, it, 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 it may have seemed to an outsider like it was irretrievable, but, but I always maybe the optimist in me and maybe that's what that's the key ingredient for any entrepreneur is to always um, be optimistic. And I always felt that the next the next big deal was the one that would turn things around. And, and we did turn things around just in time. 
Penny. Sometimes we hear about founders going to great and sometimes terrifying lengths to keep the lights on. Were there any ever times when that happened to you? Uh, no, I think that I have, have, I suppose, spoken to others that uh, had revenue knocking on their door and things like that. We, we never had that. We, we, we always we always got there just in time. And if there's any, we've never missed payroll for anybody. Um, uh, and that's something I'm proud of. You know, even, our, even in the toughest of times, we made payroll for everybody and everyone got paid. And, uh, but yeah, I've heard stories from others where, you know, it's, they, they didn't. And that's, that's really tough. And I think that's, that's the biggest fear of anybody who founds a company that you're, you're bringing people on board. You're, you're, they're trusting in you and mm. you have to make it work and uh, making payroll is, is is the most important thing you've got to do for them were there any advantages or disadvantages from a college career did you have resources for example that you could call on from being an academic for example um, or yes. on the other hand were there any disadvantages were you used to a more structured stable pensionable environment <laughs> yes. that you couldn't then rely on where there were x factors coming at you from all ways I'm, I'm wondering about those advantages and disadvantages the advantages tended to be longer term advantages so in your first years when, when you're working on something novel you often have to dig deeper foundation and you have it gives you the conviction. I, I think that you know, what, in terms of our product roadmap and what we're building, we're highly differentiated from our competitors because we have high conviction about uh, a topic that we researched in depth in the university. And we had time during the university years to really study and understand how innovations in our space uh, could, be, could be built and scaled. But those are advantages in your longer term roadmap. They weren't, you know, the disadvantages were that you were ill-prepared for landing customer deals in year one and year two, how to structure negotiations with um, customers that are expecting uh, professionalism and experience in software sales and contracting processes. And you're not well prepared on that front. Um, so if you can get through the early years as uh, a start of emerging from a university setting, you, you can be well placed for longer term, bigger success, but your early years are actually a little more difficult, I would argue. Mm. Now, we're in the middle of a supply chain crisis. It's been ongoing for two years now, maybe three. What is the problem that Kielvar solves? So Kielvar helps buying organizations, lar large buying organizations to talk to more suppliers in parallel and capture richer information from the marketplace so that when you're awarding contracts, you can manage competitive bid processes. So there could be auctions or multi-round bid processes at scale very efficiently. And you, you can allow your suppliers to be very expressive in you know, and small, medium, and large suppliers, and this is this is the key to it. And this is what I suppose what made we the reason we're passionate about this area is that I can relate back to my parents' business as a very small chemical manufacturer, and they had a, a niche range of pro, range of products that they would like to offer, and they had economies of scale. So if they if they sell 
bigger volumes of A, B, and C. They'll, they'll give you a discount on D, E, and F, and, and so on. And that, those type of economies of scale and capacity constraints and diseconomies of scale, they exist everywhere. Small, medium, and large companies have, have these uh, different cost structures. So what we allowed procurement teams do is to capture a rich picture of those so you can blend together small, medium, and large suppliers. And if you're a Coca-Cola or a Mercedes-Benz or you're a very large company, you need powerful software to help you find that optimal blend. Because that's the key to doing procurement really well is to actually bring in the small guys as well. And it keeps the, the bigger guys honest too. Mm. Now, you also develop what you call sourcing bots. Can you explain what a sourcing bot is and how it works? Yes. Uh, so our, our first product was a sourcing optimizer that, and, and our customers gravitated towards applying it on their biggest sourcing projects. So they could be $100 million or $500 million sourcing projects, and, but they used our SaaS application and, to negotiate those in a, in a manual way, a conventional SaaS application. But sourcing bots are like proxy users. You know, the lar- world's largest companies don't have very many people who are skilled in, in using sourcing optimization. And they see it as kind of the Ferrari of e-sourcing. So we developed a second offering, which are these sourcing bots as software agents as that could use the sourcing optimizer. So they could apply this type of best practice and negotiations to all of their sourcing events, even the very small ones where it could be a $20,000 sourcing event. They could negotiate, the bots could, could run that process for you and involve three, four, five different suppliers and allow them uh, break things down and offer uh, expressive um, bids and apply that best practice at scale. So, um, so when I think of examples in supply chain or logistics, I think of things like, um, like ocean freight or air freight, for example. And that is a common problem, a common challenge that a lot of organizations have. Where does Kilvar come in there? Yes. So in, I would say a large number of the world's biggest shippers, you know, those are moving goods uh, like, like car manufacturers and Samsung's and, and all of these big companies, they rely on Kilbar. They initially engage with us to run their annual bid events. And this is when supply chains were predictable and you could negotiate rates on thousands of different shipping lanes annually and you'd have a fixed price for the year. But things started to break down and contracts weren't being honored because uh, the the carriers were changing the prices. They were changing the shipping lanes. They weren't serving certain shipping lanes when ports were closed. So they had to go back out to market. The shippers had to go back out to market repeatedly. Every month they might be going to market over and over, getting new updated prices. But they didn't have uh, big procurement teams to do to do this manually. So they needed help in automating this. So the sourcing bots for air freight and ocean freight, we witnessed high demand for, we've witnessed high demand in the last two years. And those sourcing bots, they can go in and distinguish between what's working, what's not working to use their, your example of, you know, the, the ocean shipping uh, lines. Yeah. They have the ability to go in and sort them out. 
Exactly. So they can bias in favor of carriers that are reliable and bias against those that are not reliable. And if somebody's not delivering or not collecting containers from a port, you can go back out to market and source alternatives very, very quickly. Mm. I'm reminded of the early days of Apple, of Tim Cook in Apple in the 1990s, the early 2000s. He honed his reputation as somebody who was brilliant at sharpening the company's supply chain process to the point where it was a huge advantage for Apple. If Kilvar had been around then with its technology now, how would it have helped him and Apple? So it's, yeah, you're right to point out that Apple were very good at uh, including robustness in their supply chains. And the way they did that was they designed their products so that they could have different chip manufacturers substitute for one another. So if one plant for one supplier fails, they could turn to another. And it starts at the design phase. So companies that, that's, that build robustness into their designs, they can then apply sourcing optimization to blend the volumes that they award to multiple suppliers. And then, then they can change that weighting and optimization is key for that. So you, you don't necessarily go 50-50, it's 70-30 it's or it's 60 30 10 and then you you bring new suppliers on board and you should be disciplined about never having a single point of failure Mm. so if your entire product line depends on one key supplier then you should be coaching another supplier to act as a substitute and i think that's where cook came in there was a famous story about him at a board meeting uh, with a subordinate who was tasked to help him with finding a new supply chain partner. And they discussed the issue and the partner was in China. And at the end of the meeting, Cook turned to him and said, what are you doing still sitting here? Get on a plane to China now. And that was the way things happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. But maybe what you're saying is that there is a greater degree of intelligent automation now possible for processes like that. Exactly. You can you can build you can build that in you can automate that in your processes now. Uh, and particularly in in spend categories like transportation, where you can have several choices. Uh, there was a tendency in procurement to just go with the cheapest or the fastest. And it's not as black and white as that. It, you should be developing relationships with multiple suppliers and giving a proportion of volume to each of them and then adjusting that the proportions over time uh, but never putting all your your eggs in one basket taking a step back um, what do you think is going to happen with the supply chain crisis that we're still somewhat in do you think it's likely to get better or worse I think that there are some industries where things are improving, but others where it's deteriorating. So we're going to see supply chains in flux in different product lines at different stages. The COVID situation in Asia has not resolved. Uh, you know, I suppose in, in Europe, we're seeing everything is improving so much. Uh, there's almost uh, an expectation that that's a worldwide phenomenon, but it's, it's far from it. And some Chinese ports and uh, are, are still in lockdown and uh, goods aren't moving. And there, there tends to be a six to eight week delay on uh, shutdowns in Chinese ports. And we haven't felt it yet, but we may see some electronic products 
uh, inventory levels in Europe declining in the next six, eight weeks, it will still be difficult to get cars, new cars and so on. Uh, and then there are issues in food supply chains. So during the pandemic, food supply chains weren't heavily impacted, but the situation in Ukraine is affecting that now. Uh, so we can expect continued disruption. So it's almost like a weather sort of weather bulletin now. You have to tune in week by week to, to know how supply chains are going. Um, and we don't see short-term uh, resolution. Um, but in the medium longer term, it may tend towards towards normality again. And are you and Kilvar working on anything that could help improve that situation? Indeed, yes, we're we're working on um, more sourcing bots. <laughs> they, our customers are saying, uh, we've got this for ocean and air, we, we need it for road, we need material sourcing, we need steel parts, so plastic parts, all sorts of different spend categories where supply chain disruptions have been witnessed. So we're broadening um, the, the range of applications for sourcing automation. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. Just lastly, um, you just raised $24 million in your latest funding round. Congratulations um, on that. And I think that brings to, it to $43 million since the company was founded um, a decade ago. Do you think you got in just at the right time in terms of raising cash? We see at the moment that tech stocks are falling quite a bit. There was a report out by the Irish Venture Capital Association talking of clouds on the horizon in terms of raising money. Interest rates are rising as well. Um, maybe it was good timing for you guys? Yes, I I think it, it, it's, it, it is good timing in that with the crash on the stock market, there's going to be a big slowdown in, in VC funding. It, it, it's already started. I'd say many of the VC funds slowed down considerably uh, since January even. I think they saw it was on, on the wall then. So they're, they're being judicious, but they're not shutting. They're not pulling down the shutters either. Um, so it, if you've been performing well, it's a good time. To, it was, it, I, 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 I suppose it was a few months ago when we started the process. So if we started mm. now, it may be that much, that bit much uh, more difficult, I, I expect. Mm. Uh, but it's not impossible. And uh, good businesses will still get funded. Yeah. And then finally, if there are any ac other academics listening or students or PhD graduates listening to this podcast at the moment, and they're thinking of, starting a company what advice would you have for them i i i'm always reluctant to say just go for it i i think that that's that's the wrong advice i what i would urge them to do is de-risk it as much as you can in advance of jumping and if like me it's an itch you have to scratch and you'll regret it for the rest of your life if you if you don't then then by all means do it Try and get support from the university. I think that what would have helped me in retrospect is if if the university had um, uh, perhaps given the option to staff members to take some time off and give it a year, two years even. To, um, to I think if if there was that option, more academics would would try their luck. But then maybe the university would lose the academics, right? <laughs> Yes, but um, 
I think that academics, the universities tend to have no shortage of applicants for roles. There's still a very strong demand amongst postdocs for lectureship positions in, in universities. And you know, universities, I suppose, they serve society. Their, their, their function is to, um, to serve the wider goods. And I think that they, broadly speaking, they're, they're very supportive and encouraging of entrepreneurship. And they see that as part of their role too. Great. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. Alan Holland, founder and CEO of Kielvar. And that's all we have time for this week. So for me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I'll talk to you the same time next week. Bye bye. 